Behind the Knife, the surgery podcast. Relevant and engaging content designed to help you dominate the day. Behind the Knife would like to sincerely thank Medtronic for sponsoring the entire 2023 Absite podcast series. Medtronic has a rich history of supporting surgical education, and we couldn't be happier they chose a partner with Behind the Knife. Their sponsorship goes a long way in supporting us as we develop exciting new content. As surgeons, we know and love Medtronic for their trusted brands like the Signia, Tri-Staple Smart Stapling Platform, and Ligature Vessel Sealer. But Medtronic's impact extends well beyond the operating room. Medtronic's mission is to engineer the extraordinary. And with 90,000 plus people in over 150 countries, Medtronic is committed to accelerating access to healthcare technology, advancing inclusion, diversity, and equity, and protecting our planet. Learn more at Medtronic.com. All right, welcome back. It's Absite 2023. As always, Behind the Knife is ready to help you dominate the exam with our 30-episode Absite Review series and our Absite Review book. We also want to share with you what's up next for Behind the Knife. 2023 is going to be a banner year. We are investing big time in our platform, and we are currently working on a brand new website and accompanying iOS and Android apps. The website and apps will include tons of useful features and will make it easier to access all of the exciting new content we are making. Speaking of content, we are expanding our oral board review resources with a general surgery oral board review book and oral board audio review courses for vascular surgery, colorectal surgery, and surgical oncology. We are also almost finished with an incredible new trauma video surgical atlas. This will include 24 beautifully shot and edited trauma video scenarios, many of which have never been captured on video before. For students, we are creating a comprehensive resource designed to help them dominate their surgery rotation. This is no small project and includes written content, original illustrations, audio, and video. We've also created our very own suture kit and knot board with high quality instructional videos for right and left-handed learners. Finally, we are well underway with a full makeover of the Absite Review Series and book, both of which will be ready before the 2024 test. Be sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram, and please leave us a review wherever you listen to your podcasts. If you want to learn more, visit BehindTheKnife.org. Now, take a deep breath. You've got this. All right, let's jump right back into it. So we're going to start off with some hepatobiliary lesions. We'll start off with cystic lesions first. Uh, so, uh, Wu, when I say coleodocal cyst, what comes to mind? What are those? Tell us a little bit about them. Yeah, so coleodocal cysts, um, their etiology is unknown, but it's likely secondary to an anomalous biliary pancreatic duct junction uh, that can generate reflux of pancreatic enzymes. And, and so these patients also tend to have a long, common uh, BP duct. Most of these are identified and treated in early childhood. They can cause pain biliary obstruction, and cirrhosis. Uh, overall, you can break them apart into the Todani classification. Um, and we'll go through these. Uh, there's one through five. Okay, so let's just go through these systematically. So uh, this is, again, the Todani classification for coledocal cyst. Um, as Wu said, typically in, in childhood, um, not really sure why they, they happen, but it's that if, if they had to put your money on something, it'd be that anomalous biliopancreatic duct with a long common BP duct, and there's reflux up and it causes these cysts. 
So, woo, type 1 uh, choledocal cyst, what is that? So type 1 is a fusiform dilation of the extrahepatic biliary tree. Okay, and how do you treat those? With resection and a hepaticojejunostomy. Now, we should have mentioned it, but aside from, you know, these potentially being symptomatic and causing obstruction, why do you have to resect these? They carry malignant potential. Correct. Okay, so type 1, fusiform dilation of the extrahepatic biliary tree, resect, hepaticoj for that. Kevin, type 2, what's a type 2 choledocal cyst? So this is the saccular diverticulum of the common bile duct. Okay, and how do you treat that? I think of it as like a little appendix coming off. Uh, and so for this, you can generally just excise it. Um, but then a, lo- a lot of times you need to do a Roux-en-Y biliary enteric reconstruction. Yep. So these are a diverticulum in the common bile duct, excise assist, um, it, it is, um, and you'll likely have to do some form of reconstruction with that. Woo, type 3, choledocal cyst. So type 3 is also called the choledocal seal. It's a dilation of the intramural duct. You can approach these transduodenally and do a transduodenal excision with sphincteroplasty. Yep. So a choledocal seal, uh, it's the intramural duct. So you do a transduodenal approach and either excise or you do a sphincteroplasty. Okay. So type 4 is broken up into two. There's 4A and 4B. Uh, Kevin, what's a type 4A and then what's a type 4B? So the 4A is multiple dilations of both the intra and extrahepatic ducts. Uh, for the 4A, you do a hepatic resection and a biliary reconstruction with a hepaticojejunostomy. Yep, so do a hepatic resection of the involved, seg- of the involved segments um, and then do your biliary reconstruction. Okay, 4B? And the 4B is just uh, multiple dilations of the extrahepatic ducts alone. Mm-hmm. And so you do an excision with hepaticojejunostomy. Yep, so again, 4A is dilations of the intra and extrahepatic ducts. 4B is the extrahepatic ducts alone. Okay, woo, type 5. So five, uh, by contrast, you have dilation of only the intrahepatic ducts. Uh, this is also known as Caroli's disease, and these you treat with transplant. Okay, and there are the rare there are cases where you can attempt a partial resect, resection if only one part of the liver um, is is mostly affected. But yeah, I think the board answer is going to be transplantation for type five. Okay, so those are choledocal cysts. Um, moving on to the liver, so a simple hepatic cyst again. Seeing more and more of these as we have, um, everybody gets a CT scan. So what do you do with these? Uh, simple hepatic cyst with no concerning features on imaging. Uh, you can just do nothing if it's asymptomatic. If you aspirate these, uh, they will definitely come back. There's a 100% recurrence rate. Uh, sometimes if patients are very symptomatic from a very large cyst or multiple cysts, you see sometimes a polycystic liver disease. Uh, you can do laparoscopic cyst fenestration for these symptomatic cysts. And they should always send the capsule for pathology. Yep. And so it's a small hepatic cyst. Don't worry about them. Don't have to do anything. Uh, the larger symptomatic ones, cyst fenestration is going to be the answer. Um, just make sure you rule out other pathologies uh, like abscess, height-added cyst, or, or malignancy. If there's any concern for that, you need an aspiration. You need to get your diagnosis first. Okay. So let's move on to some hepatobiliary, some more solid tumors. So, um, these, these will come up uh, a lot of times. This is great, um, questions for using imaging of showing you a CT scan or an MRI and then asking you how to treat that. So, um, as we go through these, if you don't know what they look like on imaging, you should Google it and find out. Um, so woo, let's start off with the most common, uh, hemangioma. Uh, tell us a little bit about those. Yeah. So hemangiomas are again, the most common liver tumor. They have a male predominance and they have equal distribution in the liver. Uh, they are congenital vascular malformations. They're generally asymptomatic, 
But when they do have symptoms, they can cause pain, compressive symptoms. Uh, rarely, they can cause hemorrhage, inflammation, and coagulopathy. Uh, this is actually known as the Kasselbach-Merritt syndrome. And, and what is that Kasselbach-Merritt syndrome exactly? So this is a consumptive coagulopathy that occurs uh, secondary to a large hemangioma. Right, a consumptive coagulopathy. Um, okay, what do uh, what do hemangiomas look like on a CT scan? Classically, these have a hypodense appearance in the pre-contrast phase. In the arterial phase, they have peripheral central enhancement. And then in the delayed series, they show persistent contrast. Okay. Yep. That's, and those are, those are key words there, especially that peripheral central enhancement on arterial phase of the CT for hemangioma. Okay. How about on MRI? On MRI, these are going to be hypo intense on T1 and hyper intense on T2. Okay. And, uh, treatment? So for asymptomatic hemangiomas, observation, what about, regardless of size. Okay. What is there a risk of, I mean, what, 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 what is there a risk of rupture? Won't these patients bleed to death? Uh, so not for hemangiomas. Yep, hemangiomas, no. So if they're asymptomatic, no matter how large um, and scary they look, you can leave them alone. Okay, for uh, symptomatic, what do you do? So you resect symptomatic hemangiomas. Okay. Kevin, moving on to the next is uh, another very common one, FNH, or the focal nodular hyperplasia. Uh, it's the second most common liver tumor. Who does it affect and uh, how does it behave? So yeah, we generally see this in women um, between the ages of 30 and 50. Uh, these are generally completely benign, um, and they're usually asymptomatic and found on just incidentally on imaging. Okay, and on imaging, what do they, what do they look like on CT scan? So thankfully, these have a nice buzzword for us that really helps us out, um, but they're well uh, demarcated. They have rapid arterial enhancement, and they have the central stellate scar. Yep, the FNH with the central stellate scar on CT is, is classic. Okay, on MRI? Uh, on MRI, they're hypo-intense with a central scar on T1, and then they're iso-intense with hyper-intense scar on T2. Yep. And again, there's buzzwords associated with each of these. Definitely know those, but be aware that they could just show you an image and not use any of these buzzwords. So it's not enough just to know the buzzwords. You have to know what it looks like. Um, so for FNH, uh, what's the treatment? Uh, you don't do anything for these. Okay. As you mentioned before, they're completely benign, no malignant, no malignant potential, no bleeding risk. Okay. So let's move on to uh, woo, adenoma. Uh, tell us about adenomas. So adenomas are rare. Uh, in the question stem, look for OCP use or androgen or steroid use. Um, they have a malignant transformation in 10%. Uh, they have a risk of rupture that increases with the size uh, with 30% risk of spontaneous bleeding if the tumor size is greater than five centimeters they can present with pain, abdominal fullness, abnormal LFTs, or bleeding from rupture. Yeah, this is one of those things that it, it, adenoma, you think, oh, it sounds benign, it sounds it sounds uh, not scary, but there is a pretty decent malignant p potential and a pretty decent uh, risk of rupture. So uh, these are things you have to take seriously. What do they look like on imaging, on CT scan? So look for arterial enhancement with washout in the portovenous phase. Uh, additionally, they have a smooth surface with the tumor capsule, and they have a lack of that central scar. Okay. Um, and on MRI? On MRI, they're mildly hyperintense on both T1 and T2. Okay. How do you treat uh, adenomas? We mentioned that there's some complications, so I'm sure you have to do something about them. How do you make that decision? So if they're small and the patient is on OCPs, you want to stop the OCPs and see if they regress. If they're larger, so four centimeters or greater, or they have no regression after stopping OCPs, then you resect these. If the patient presents with rupture, then first line is IR embolization, then recover the patient, and then resect in an elective setting. 
yeah, so it depends on the size and depends on, on on what happens with it. So you have to do something about all of them. If they're small, you can stop try stopping the OCPs, and if it completely regresses, okay. Um, if it doesn't regress or if it's larger than four centimeters, that resects. They may give you somebody who has you know an adenoma that has already ruptured, and the first step in that is IR embolization. Uh, one quick uh, point to make on an additional radiologic study, if you're helping to differentiate between a focal nodular hyperplasia and adenoma, as the treatment for these is very different. Uh, so sometimes um, they'll do a sulfur colloid scan um, to determine the difference. And what you'll see in the focal nodular hyperplasia is you'll see that there actually are functioning uh, Kupfer cells that will take up the nuclear radiotide throughout the um, focal nodular hyperplasia lesion, whereas in adenomas, you'll see an absence of the nuclear uh, radioisotope taken up throughout the central um, aspect of the adenoma, and you'll really only see it on the periphery. Yeah, so you, you think about that. The adenoma is an overgrowth of, of, of certain uh, cell types, so it doesn't have those Kupfer cells, or if it does, their function is diminished. So they will not take up the sulfur colloid, and FNH will. So that's a, a great point, Kevin. That's a good way of, of delineating those two if there's any diagnostic confusion. Okay, so that uh, leads us right into our hepatocellular carcinoma. Uh, so what are some risk factors for hepatocellular carcinoma? Yeah, so think of any sort of inflammation in the liver as a key risk factor for hepatocellular carcinoma. So hep B, hep C, cirrhosis of any cause, uh, any inherited errors of metabolism like uh, hemochromatosis or alpha-1 antitrypsin deficiency, as, as well as aflatoxins. And how do these look on CT scan? So on CT, they have a characteristic hypervascular lesion that is hyperintense during the arterial phase and hypodense during the delayed phase. Okay, so let's say you have a patient that has a CT scan that looks uh, like uh, they have a risk factor, they have a history of hep B, and they have a, a CT scan that looks like a, a hepatocellular carcinoma. Um, do you want to biopsy that or so these can actually be diagnosed on imaging alone, and biopsy carries significant risk. So in these patients, you do not biopsy. Well, you say you say on imaging alone, but what else do you need? Uh, that's right. So having an elevated AFP level can also be helpful in the diagnosis. Right. So if you have a characteristic lesion on imaging and you have an elevated AFP, uh, you do not need a biopsy. You can make the diagnosis. Uh, what's the role of a PET scan in these patients? There is no role for PET. Yep. So this is one of the cancers where you do not get a, a PET scan. Um, okay. So just some most common. So what's the most common site of, of metastasis for hepatocellular carcinoma? The lung. Okay. Kevin, walk us through some principles of management for this hepatocellular carcinoma. Right. So in general, you want to resect these if possible. Uh, so resection is indicated for cure if it's a solitary mass without major vascular inter invasion and adequate liver function. Uh, so you have to evaluate these patients for, you know, do they have underlying cirrhosis that's complicating this? And then how much of the liver would you have to take out and how much function would they have once that liver is taken out? Um, resection is possible but controversial for limited major vascular invasion or multifocal disease that is resectable. Okay. So you mentioned there that you have to have so some a lot of a lot of things in there. So solitary mass without major vascular invasion and adequate liver function. How do you determine adequate liver function? So there's a special, I believe it's a CT scan that does, uh, that they can protocol that does future liver remnant. Um, and this will help give you an idea of how much uh, function the liver has. Yeah. So you need a volumetric analysis to determine your future liver remnants. Uh, so how much, what, how much future uh, liver remnant is needed? 
So the liver has an amazing uh, capability to regenerate. So if there's no cirrhosis, you can take out 75% of the liver, leaving only 25% behind in a healthy, otherwise healthy liver. And what about if you do have uh, mild cirrhosis? So a child's A uh, cirrhosis patient, they, they need 30 to 40% uh, future liver remnant in order to safely resect it. So we will, let's say you have a patient that looks like they have a resectable lesion, but their future liver remnant isn't just quite enough. Are there options? Yeah, absolutely. So you can consider preoperative portal vein embolization to try to grow that FLR. Yeah, exactly. So you, you do selective, uh, or you do portal, selective portal vein embolization, uh, with the idea, um, that, uh, the good, the part, remaining part of the liver will hypertrophy and, and then you'll increase your future liver remnant. This may be obvious to most people, but you do an embolization of the disease side. Yes. Thank you, Kevin. All right. So let's walk, let's, let's go through this. Okay. So you have a patient with a pastellar carcinoma, uh, looks resectable. Uh, they have no cirrhosis or they're a, um, uh, child's a, what are, what are you going to do with that patient? Here you resect. Okay. So let's say they have moderate to severe cirrhosis, but they have an early stage, uh, what looks like a resectable, um, lesion. So this is the patient you would consider for transplantation. Okay. And are there any criteria for, for, for transplantation with hepatocellular carcinoma? Yes. These patients have to meet the Milan and Unos criteria. So essentially, they need one lesion less than five centimeters or three or fewer lesions all less than three centimeters, as well as no gross vascular or extrahepatic spread. Okay. Say that one more time because that's important. So the Milan criteria, what is the Milan criteria? So one lesion that's less than five centimeters or three or fewer lesions that are all less than three centimeters and no gross vascular or extrahepatic spread. Okay. Kevin, what about patients who aren't candidates for surgical curative treatments? Um, what are some local regional therapies? Unfortunately, this ends up being a large majority of uh, patients with hepatocellular carcinoma due to underlying liver conditions. Uh, so they should be considered in patients that are not surgical uh, curative treatments. So these are, and sometimes these can be bridges to curative therapy if the um, tumor responds well. So one of the more common ones is ablation, which can be done by the interventional radiologist through a number of ways. This can be radiofrequency ablation, cryoablation, microwave ablation. These are best for small lesions. And sometimes actually uh, the surgical oncologist will do these in the operating room. Uh, then there's the arterially directed therapies, um, sometimes called TACE. And these can be uh, considered for uh, unresectable tumors greater than five centimeters. And then there's also a role for external beam radiation therapy. Uh, for good, these are good for lesions that are not amenable, not amenable to ablation or taste due to the tumor location. Uh, yeah, so that's that's where you really have to consider, you know, the location of the tumor, um, uh, if it's uh, near any very, you know, vital structures and kind of tailoring an approach. And, you know, generally there's very, you know, in, uh, extensive tumor, liver, liver tumor boards that, where everybody meets and kind of goes in, in, into a, a um, personalized treatment for each patient. But uh, these are just kind of general things that, that to know for, for board purposes. Okay, moving out of hepatocellular carcinoma onto cholangiocarcinoma. Um, how do we break up cholangiocarcinoma uh, when thinking about it? So you want to think about these uh, in the intrahepatic and extrahepatic. Perfect. Categories and, and Kevin, what are some risk factors for cholangiocarcinoma? So, uh, primary sclerosing cholangitis, which can be seen in patients with ulcerative colitis, uh, uh, bile duct stones, 
cholidocal cyst, as we discussed earlier. Uh, then there's some more rare things such as lo- uh, liver fluke infections, hepatitis B, hepatitis C, and just anything that causes uh, chronic inflammation of the bile ducts. Okay. So we we said that you want to break it up into intrahepatic and extrahepatic disease because um, that, that'll change how you approach it. So how do you want to approach uh, an intrahepatic cholangiocarcinoma? So for here, you want to think about the role of preoperative biopsy and, and in intrahepatic cholangiocarcinomas, Pre-op biopsy is not necessary if you have radiographic and clinical evidence that suggests malignancy. So primarily, you would go with a diagnostic laparoscopy, uh, first to rule out any disseminated disease. Uh, during the time of the diagnostic laparoscopy, you want to look for lymph node metastasis past the port hepatis, as well as distant mets, uh, which would contraindicate resection. You also want to look for any multifocal liver disease because this is generally not amenable to resection. When you then move on to do the hepatic resection, you're looking for a negative margin as your goal. So a formal anatomic resection, a wedge resection, or segmental resection can be attempted. But again, you're looking for that negative margin. Yeah, again, there's another one that you don't need a biopsy for if the imaging is characteristic. Um, however, if you, if you, based on your imaging, you think that, uh, it is a resectable lesion, you do need to perform a diagnostic laparoscopy, uh, prior to doing any resection. And then for resection, you know, the goal is, is an R0 resection. And that's going to depend on, uh, what, to what extent the cholangiocarcinoma affects liver. If it, um, affects multifocal disease, well, uh, that's, this is not one of those cases, at least not on the boards where you can be doing a transplant is in hepatocellular carcinoma. So that is, would be considered unresectable disease. Um, okay. How about, uh, extrahepatic uh, cholangiocarcinoma? So for extrahepatic cholangiocarcinoma, the basic principle is still complete resection with negative margins. You're also going to do a regional lymphadenectomy. Uh, so for hyalur carcinomas, in order to be resectable, you have to have the contralateral hemiliver intact uh, in both the arterial and portal flow, as well as biliary drainage has to be uninvolved with the tumor. Uh, for these patients, you're going to reconstruct generally with a Roux-en-Y hepaticojejunosomy. Uh, and this differs in contrast to the distal cholangiocarcinoma, where you really can't do this, and so you're obligated to do a Whipple procedure. Right. So extrahepatic cholangiocarcinoma, you need to resect and perform an, a biliary reconstruction. If it's a distal lesion, you, you'll likely need to do a Whipple. Um, for those hyalur ones, those can be very difficult, uh, especially uh, it's not always clear on imaging whether the contralateral liver is involved, but uh, you need to have an uninvolved contralateral liver in order for that to be resectable. Okay. Uh, we've covered hepatocellular carcinoma. We've covered cholangiocarcinoma. We talked earlier briefly about gallbladder polyps, but let's talk about gallbladder cancer. Uh, Kevin, risk factors, gallbladder cancer. Uh, so chronic inflammation, uh, porcelain gallbladder, uh, polyps greater than one centimeter, a typhoid infection, and then uh, primary sclerosing cholangitis and uh, inflammatory bowel disease. Okay. Now you mentioned porcelain gallbladder. I'm going to bring that back up because it's a little bit controversial. I remember learning in med school that this is almost pathognomonic for gallbladder cancer if you, you had a patient with porcelain gallbladder. Is, is that still the case? Uh, no, it's it's a much lower risk than was previously thought. Yeah, so porcelain gallbladder does not equal gallbladder cancer. Uh, some studies have shown that it's no increased risk. Um, so it's if it's an incre- if it is an increased risk for gallbladder cr- cancer, it's likely a very small increased risk. So Wu, walk me through some uh, principles of surgical management for for gallbladder cancer. I'll tell you first. Uh, let's say you do a uh, laparoscopic cholecystectomy for symptomatic choleothiasis and the pathology reports comes back that there was a 
malignancy there is called bladder cancer carnoma. The, the pathologist is saying it's a T1A, which means uh, it invades only the lamina propria. How, what do you want to do there? Yeah, so look for that T1A invading only the lamina propria because at that point, uh, for a T1A tumor, a cholecystectomy alone is treatment enough. You're surgically complete at that point. You don't need any additional therapy. However, for T1B tumors and greater, so anything that invades the muscle layer or beyond, you're going to need the cholecystectomy as well as limited hepatic resection. Typically, you're going to do segments 4B and 5, as well as a portal lymphadenectomy. Yep, exactly. So if there's any, if if it's a gallbladder cancer and it's T1A, only invades the lamina propria, cholecystectomy, you're done. Uh, if it's T1B, um, it invades the muscle layer. So if you see that it invades any muscle layer there, um, you need to do a cholecystectomy, segment 4B, 5 resection, and lymph node, lymphadenectomy. Uh, more aggressive resections may be required for more advanced disease in order to obtain uh, negative margins, but th- those are the classic ones that they're going to give you there. Okay, so that wraps up hepatobiliary. So let's let's jump right into our, our quick hits. Uh, so Kevin, you have a patient with colorectal cancer and an I- isolated liver metastasis. He receives neoadjuvant Fulfox therapy and uh, restaging shows complete radiologic response. What do you want to do with that uh, that side of the metastasis? So even though the patient has no further evidence of colorectal metastasis to the liver, you still want to perform a hepatic resection as a complete pathologic response is rare. Right, exactly. So just because you can't see it on an image anymore doesn't mean it's not there. Okay, woo. Uh, a patient has an asymptomatic uh, coleothiasis as well as a 5-millimeter gallbladder polyp. So this patient has both stones and a 5-millimeter polyp. Uh, I would do a cholecystectomy because the risk of malignant transformation within gallbladder polyps has been linked to concurrent cholelithiasis. Yep. So all those, you know, size cutoffs we mentioned earlier, the six millimeter, the 10 millimeter, uh, and it'd be okay to watch uh, or really not do anything with a, a polyp that would be f- uh, five millimeters in any other circumstances. If they have concurrent stones, uh, that is an, a marker for an increased risk of malignant transformation. And those patients do need a cholecystectomy. Uh, Kevin, what's the highest negative predictive value for cholecystectomy? So you look at the GGT or the beta glutamyl transpepsidase. Uh, Nailed it. Normal GGT has a ninety-seven percent negative predictive value. Correct. Perfect. Okay. Woo. Uh, so you have a you have a patient who had a prior gastric bypass, a Roux Y gastric bypass, and and now they have they present with uh, signs and symptoms of cholecystectomy. What do you want to do there? So here, preoperatively, you would prefer to do an ERCP, but a traditional ERCP won't work due to the Roux-en-Y gastric bypass anatomy, so you would do a transgastric ERCP. I have one caveat to that, which I saw in a question bank recently, is that if they do have the double balloon uh, endoscopy where they can do an ERCP that was actually in a question bank, uh, you can consider that because they can reach the... um, papilla by using the balloon technique with endoscopy yeah that's a good point that's a the key is there is just knowing that if your patient's a bypass you can't do a traditional ERCP. you can't get there so either if you have advanced endoscopic that can kind of snake around and get there with a double balloon endoscopy uh great um i think probably the more common thing is going to be the transgastric uh, ERCP. Um, okay. Woo. Uh, hepatocellular carcinoma found in a young patient with cirrhosis. What, what are you thinking of a young patient, um, that has hepatocellular carcinoma? So a young patient without cirrhosis, I'm thinking fibrolamellar variant. Uh, this has a better prognosis. Recurrence is common. 
And the marker for this is neurotensin. Yep. So that's just one of those things. A young patient without cirrhosis develops hepatocellular carcinoma. It's likely the fibrolamellar variant. Um, should know that it does have a better prognosis. And the, the tumor marker for that one is neurotensin, which uh, I don't have to tell you guys at this point, but tumor markers are highly testable. Okay, uh, Kevin, incidental finding of adenocarcinoma invading the lamina propria layer of the gallbladder wall following a cholecystectomy. No further treatment. Cholecystectomy is enough. Okay, how about if it's inv invading the muscularis propria? So cholecystectomy with a level uh, four and five uh, liver resection along with a portal node dissection. Okay, so yep, uh, resection, segment four B and five, portal lymphadenectomy. What are the tumor stages, the T stages? T1A and T1B. Yeah, T1A is the lamina propria, T1B is the muscularis propria. Uh, so let's say you're going back, you go back to the OR for your resection of your 4B5 um, and your lymphadenectomy. Do you need to excise, you'd, you'd previously done a laparoscopic cholecystectomy. Do you need, need to excise the port sites? Uh, no. Yeah, it used to be yes, um, but this has been a controversial area, but there's no benefit. So you do not need to excise the port sites when you go back. Okay, woo. I'm just going to say isolated gastric varices. What do you think? So splenic vein thrombosis, secondary to pancreatitis. Yep. So isolated gastric varices, gastric varices, uh, most commonly caused by splenic vein thrombosis, most commonly caused by pancreatitis. What's the, the treatment for that? Splenectomy. Splenectomy. We'll be curative for that. Uh, Kevin, last one. Patients four weeks after hospitalization for a car accident with a liver laceration who was managed non-operatively. Uh, he now presents with an upper GI bleed. Um, what's your first step? This has definitely been on one of my exams. Uh, so you're going to do an EGD. Okay. Yep. As with any upper GI bleed, usually the first step is EGD. Um, so you do that and you see blood coming out of the, the duodenal papilla. What's the diagnosis? Right. So this is a hepatic artery to biliary duct fistula causing the hemobilia. And what's the treatment for that? The treatment is angioembolization. And that's one of those things that'll be tricky because they're going to ask you what the first step is. So you have a, a, somebody coming in with, you're going to know that they're going for hemobilia. They're going to have the car accident. They're going to have the liver, um, uh, the liver laceration. They're going to have an upper GI bleed. And they're going to give you an option of either doing an EGD or an angioembolization. You may be thinking, well, I'm going to need an angioembolization for this. But the first step is an EGD. Um, and then angioembolization for treatment. So it's a little bit of test gamesmanship, but you have to you have to really think through how the question is asked. And uh, before we go into our last section of discussing liver uh, resections, I just wanted to tell everyone there is a paper out there. If you go to PubMed and search a handy tool to teach segmental liver anatomy to surgical trainees, uh, the lead author is Dr. Polly. Uh, this gives you a way of using your fist, your right fist, to denote the liver uh, segments. And I, f I find it really easy, and I learned this as like an R2, and I've used it ever since. So uh, maybe go look that up and then listen to this next uh, 30 seconds here as we go over our liver sections. Uh, so, Wu, what's, uh, what uh, this will be our last of our quick hits, but Wu, what constitutes a, a right liver resection? Segments 5, 6, 7, and 8. 5, 6, 7, 8. Uh, Kevin, left. So this is your 2, 3, and 4. Okay. Plus or minus the um, caudate. Okay, so, woo, left lateral segmentectomy. Two and three. Kevin, extended right. So, for your extended right, you're going to have all the same ones as your right, which is five, six, seven, eight, but you're going to add in four there also. Woo, extended left. So, you're going to start with the left, which is two, three, and four, and then you're going to add on five and eight. All right, that does it for Behind the Knife's Hepatobiliary Review. Uh, we'll see you next time. 
Thanks for listening, and thank you to Medtronic for supporting surgical residents preparing for the 2023 app site. Since 1949, Medtronic has relentlessly pursued therapies that change lives. Today, we thank Medtronic for supporting surgical residents as they relentlessly pursue their dreams. From all of us at Behind the Knife and Medtronic, dominate the app site. Be sure to check out our website at www.behindthenife.org for more great content. You can also follow us on Twitter at Behind the Knife and Instagram at Behind the Knife Podcast. If you like what you hear, please take a minute to leave us a review. Content produced by Behind the Knife is intended for health professionals and is for educational purposes only. We do not diagnose, treat, or offer patient-specific advice. Thank you for listening. Until next time, dominate the day.